Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to The Reset with me, Sam Delaney, a mental health podcast, but without all the usual bollocks. For this week's pod, I spoke to the author, graffiti artist and former criminal Justin Rollins. Justin grew up on the streets of South London as part of a graffiti gang. He was involved in crime and violence from a very young age and served numerous spells in prison. He was in his 20s when he first started to question his violent behaviour and investigate the reasons behind it. By understanding the causes of his actions, he was better able to change them. He's now a loving father and successful writer who's written a fantastic book based on his youth called The Lost Boys, which has just been made into a short film. As you'll hear, Justin's articulate, thoughtful and pretty chilled. It's such a massive turnaround from the quite vicious person he was not that long ago. His story's pretty dramatic and very shocking at times, but... I hope you'll find it inspiring too. Enjoy this episode and remember, if you like this, you should subscribe to the Reset Weekly newsletter at samdelaney.substack.com. Anyway, here's Justin. Justin, welcome to the Reset. Thanks for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here, mate. Um, Now, I know a certain amount about your life. In your youth, you were involved in crime and violence, right? Yeah. And and led what I suppose can be described at times as like a feral youth. You you were out yeah. on the street a lot. I've I've met you a couple of times, and you know you you're these days you're a very calm, peaceful, measured sort of a bloke. So yeah. I'm fascinated by you know at what it was that made you the way you were when you were a kid. What what was your upbringing like? How did it contribute to you becoming a, a tear away, to put it mildly? Yeah, so my early childhood was ex- like extremely, um, don't know, like extremely traumatic. I, I believe um, my my first real uh, problem, or my first, sorry, the first real incident when I was about three years old, and I was attacked by my stepdad's Doberman dog, and it. Um, you know, bit the side of my head, the top of my head and like my eye. And I, and I had like, you know, something like 30 odd stitches or something. Um, so that was a real traumatic experience for me. And then from then, from that age up until I was around 12, I, 
I had something called rhythmic movement disorder, which is a sleeping disorder in children. Um, but my family didn't know that it was a sleeping disorder. Um, they thought I would literally just bang my head to go to sleep. That's what rhythmic movement disorder is. So I'd smash my head on the pillow to go to sleep. Or as I'm waking up, I'd be banging my head until I came around again. Um, but my family thought it was just where my mum would like rock me on my knee. But it wasn't until years later when I started doing some research into rhythmic movement disorder that it can come, it can develop through uh, injury to the brain. Um, so I could have possibly had suffered brain damage from the, the attack from, from the dog. Um, and I've, I've, I've done some criminology lectures with uh, Professor David Wilson, who's like, the top of his game and he believes that my violence stems from that head injury from the dog because kids or boys that experience some head trauma when they're young they they're more likely to go on to be violent in their teens so that that's sort of one theory another theory is at aged around five years old I was um I, I was placing a child minders and the, and the teenage son would um, strangle me with fishing wire and the child minders would um, lock me on the balcony and basically tease and terrorize me. And it was obviously a really traumatic thing for a five-year-old. I didn't understand. Um, and it was around, my mum sent me back to the child minders. So this is something to do with uh, trauma as well, like feeling abandoned emotionally by my mum. Um, so these are a few things of which you know my 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 behaviour sort of stem around um, because at that age, age five, I started stealing and um, I started being violent to other children after the violent incident to me. So yeah, there are a few of a few of the things which could have um, led me on to to be become like a real feral violent uh, teenager. So I mean, it was part clinical. And part yeah. just to do with your environment and your experiences. Yeah, yeah. There, there's a big combination of things because um, I grew up in a well. Uh, I'm mixed racially. My mum is my mum's mixed Anglo Indian and English uh, white British. Um, but she's more like a to me. She's always been a white English lady, um, and that side of the family are all white British. Um, but my dad's side are mixed Sri Lankan and Burmese but I never knew that side of the family and growing up in a predominantly white town, which was pretty like hardcore. It's a lot of racism in back in those years, like mid eighties, early nineties. And I experienced a lot of racism. So I couldn't understand it because I had an English name and a, and a white family. So it, um, the self identity thing. Yeah. Really, really took its toll. And, um, yeah, it made me really insecure and like, yeah, all over the show, really. So, so yeah, there's a quite a lot of things. Yeah, there's a, a lot, a lot yeah. to unpick, mate. Um, yeah, yeah. And 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 what about you know? You've mentioned your stepdad. You mentioned your your dad. There were these the, yeah. the 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 dominant male role models in your life when you were a kid. Yeah, well, my dad left when I was really young, probably two age one or two. So don't really remember him. I've met him once when I was in prison at age eighteen. Um, and then my stepdad was around, but you know we we wasn't very close. You know what I mean? I I was I was what you what I would call like a wanderer. I I didn't want to be at home from a very young age. Age ten, eleven, I just started running away from home. Um, 
And it's only recently still having ongoing therapy for, tra- for, for trauma that my therapist, who's an EMDR consultant, she believes that I've got ADHD as well as complex PTSD. Um, and that was the first time every, anyone ever said it to me. I got a little bit offended at first. But then when I really look back at my childhood um, and I was, say, age 13, 14 in high school, opposite um the playing field was a railway track and i was into graffiti i could literally see the railway track from um the classroom and you know kids i can't concentrate in class i like eventually i would would escape from the school climb over into the playing field and make my way onto the railway track in broad daylight on my own in my school uniform climbing over the big fence and walking along the railway track so that's not normal behavior now since she's mentioned adhd i can really sort of recognize that that in me yeah um and and you know you say it started with just being out and about not wanting to be at home not sitting in school how did things escalate from there well um well being on like the old saying the devil makes work for to idle hands or idle thumbs it's, it's exactly that if if you're if you're like a wanderer you're a kid that's not getting on in school when you're wandering the streets you're going to find the same kids as you that they've obviously come from troubled backgrounds or they've got something going on and you you basically attract each other and then you know you're egging each other on and it just starts escalating um but i found graffiti age probably 11 um and I created a tag and I started writing my tag around the area, which I always think look at as like an OCD. I think a lot of graffiti taggers have OCDs, like they're obsessed with writing their, their name over and over again on walls or the railway. Um, so writing my name around took me onto the railways and it took me into deeper parts of London where there's more tougher, harder kids. Um, and it also gave me my first... Um, form of like an identity so I actually like you know I wasn't I wasn't a packy as other kids was, were calling me I was a graffiti tag and I had a tag and I was sort of becoming respected by my peers yeah and and so you know yeah you, you built a reputation from there so yeah do you feel like it was the first sort of in your mind at the time first positive sort of re- uh, reputation that you'd had yeah it was um y- y- it's, it's like you, you get a bit of respect. Um, you In your mind, as like a teenage graffiti tagger, you're sort of infamous or or you, you become a celebrity amongst other graffiti taggers and, and your name's like written on the side of a train and it's flying into London. So you, you feel you feel strong and you feel like um, you feel like you're a somebody really. So but um, so they, that started off pretty innocently. Um, and then I met a group of kids we become friends um and we started our own graffiti crew which was which was called wz which stood for warriors with a z on the end or war zone um yeah just a just a small group of sort of lost like i said lost boys um and then there was another there was another group a rival group called uh, wk from the kingston borough london borough of kingston and we were from london borough of merton and then they started doing lines through our tag and saying like telling me to stop writing wz because the it, it sounded too similar um but then i started you know boasting and pretending to be this big hard man even though i was a skinny little kid in front of my friends um 
and then yeah then the violence started we 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 went basically went to war with them yeah and i just got sucked literally sucked into a world of violence from, from that and is that what what is that like is that because you find yourself trapped in it or and and you had no you had no option once you'd started to be yeah. involved or yeah. did you actually enjoy that at that time in your life yeah so um I was boasting that we're going to go and find WK. I never realized that, you know, come Friday afternoon, there was, I think, like 30 odd kids outside Malden Station. And my, my, my graffiti tag was 706, but my sh- street name was Sevens. And they're like, Sevens, let's go there. So I'm like, okay, I can't turn around or run. I've been trying to impress everybody. So we went there and um, we found WK and you know, there was a real, real violent incident. There was knives, bats, all sorts of stuff. But when we got there, somebody, and we found WK, somebody shouted, set in sevens, meaning, you you know, you need to rep, you need to you yeah. need to attack. So so I picked up a piece of concrete and, and an attack happened. Um, we all escaped and we got back to Malden. And then when we got back to Malden, it was like, Everyone was, um, you know, on an adrenaline high and everyone's like sort of pats on the backs. And I looked around and it was the sort of the first time that I felt sort of powerful. And, you know, I'm not that I'm not being bullied for my race. And um, yeah, so it was. It was, yes, as sickening as it sounds, it was enjoyable at the time. And to get that respect and for people to fear you and to have that power when you know finally you know it's, it's basically a middle finger up to it and any of the bullies or anything that happened to me in my early childhood yeah so, yeah and so uh, and and then how old were you when that particular incident happened i think i was 14 wow yeah pretty yeah i mean when you see 14 year old kids now yeah you you personally now how old are you now I'm 36. So you're 36. So when you're looking around and you see a kid who's 14 now, yeah, does it? Do you ever get those sorts of fucking hell? Look at that. He looks like a baby. Like the things that I was doing yeah. at that age. Yeah. Well, my daughter's just about to turn 14 in a, in oh, a well, month. Um, yeah. yeah. So, um, but I think it. Vision, seeing myself go to Feltham Young Offenders Institution, age fifteen, and I was I was small. I was a tiny little kid. I think I weighed about six stone or something, right? Mm. And there was big boys in there, like predators, and I was just a nobody. And out on the street, I thought I was like some big man. Um, yeah, it was just yes, yeah, it's crazy to think. So, so yeah. what was that first experience like? Then did that humble you? Did that change your attitude, or did it make you worse? Because uh, you know what we hear. As, yeah. you know civilians we're always hearing our uh, places like Feltham they come out even worse because they learn too well, much and it and and the experience in there make yeah. them more angry or dangerous yeah well to give you an idea of what Feltham was like back then just a few months after I was released um Zahid Mubarak um was he was I think he was a I think he was in for stealing a car, a car radio. He was placed in a cell with a known racist. Um, and there was accusations to the, that the prison officers done this on purpose for to see what would happen. And Zahid was being released in the morning. Um, 
And in the middle of the night, Robert Stewart, the, the known racist, um, like got a table leg and battered him to death in the cell. That was how brutal Felton was wow. when I was there. It was horrible. I, I, I got eaten alive. I, I had to go on to the uh, vulnerable persons, the vulnerable right. persons wing. Um, and I think facing that ridicule and being bullied, it was always inside me to overcome overcome that like what when when years down the line when i actually became really extremely violent that was to do with mental health and survival later on in prison years down the line and i'm on my own and i'm taking on big people on my own with a weapon but it, it was all based out of fear um fear for my life um i was actually pr- i was pr- i'd sit there and say to the officers no they're like what have you done like rollins and I'd, I'd say I'm proud. Like I, I find, I finally like I'm on my own and I can look after myself. It's, mm. it's a hor- horrible, horrible place to be in that state of mind. Yeah, but it's a horrible situation for people to be yeah. put in. Yeah. Well, um, so so many of the kids that were in Feltham were come from really like they 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 don't come from stable backgrounds. Like, do you no. know what I mean? It's very rare that they come from like a loving home or parents have split up and then they've like you know they've you know like the most simplest things and that they've it's been hard on them and they go down the wrong path so i mean a lot of lot of kids in there have like suffered a lot of abuse and violence and from a young age they think that, that that's normal it's like yeah it's horrible i've always said that you know if you commit a crime you have to do the time um but there's more to it you know what is the reason is the person a career criminal but if it's if it's a child then you know are they going through some sort of trauma and this is how they're dealing with it and going to prison it makes you a lot a lot harder a lot tougher um yeah it messed me up more going to felton than it did help me out yeah mm. so obviously as you said things progress you came back out and you're you're probably even more fearless than when you'd gone in so, so obviously you became more violent and the gang life yeah. and the street life just continued for many more years. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So the graffiti um, got pushed to the side and it was more about, because um, we was getting 15, 16, and then we were more into like trying to make money and wear nice clothes and stuff. Um, so we were just out on the London underground, like robbing and stealing top-up cards, uh, doing distraction theft. And the more we went to prison, to, to Felton, and the more we um, were stuck in our gang, the more difficult we found it to go to somewhere like college or mix with normal people because mm. we were just so stuck in that way. And, you know, being alert or hypervigilant for gangs and enemies and police all the time... Um, yeah, like I remember a few times going to college. My mum worked at a college and she would get me into college at a few local colleges and I'd be there and it was just, it, I just couldn't be around normal people where I was so alert and so, um, yeah, just so, yeah, just so not with it, just not with normal, normal life, yeah. And it must be really stressful when you say, you know, you're hypervigilant all the time because every time you step outside the door, you're yeah. worried about violence or whatever. That yeah. must be just fucking plain exhausting. Like you're never yeah. relaxed. Yeah, I'm. Ne- I'm. I've. I still have hypervision to this day, where I like 
any words that come or most words that come on TV or anything. I'm searching, searching, searching for a threat. And it wasn't until, say, you know, a couple of years ago that I started doing my EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, that it really started taking a hypervigilance down. But that was just a normal thing thing for me. So tell me a bit about that and or just tell me the, the story of, of the therapy you've received and the help you've received to to, yeah. to to get you back from the person you once were. Yeah, well, um, when I was in prison and I was this was 2002 and I was going up to be sentenced uh, for uh, some robberies that I committed, um, I had to see a psychiatrist and they wrote in the court reports that they, they thought um, that I had borderline personality disorder which I really hate that label but they never told me this is you know this is what it's about I had to wait three years to get out of prison and go on Google and start researching and I recognize signs of borderline like problems with self-identity like um, self-harming extreme emotions up and down but then um people with borderline personality disorder they really can't handle responsibility and their relationships and stuff break down but i but i'm a good dad i have a really good relationship with my with my children and i have relation a really good relationship with my wife so it's like that doesn't fit the person with a borderline um i've had ongoing issues you know ever since sort of turning my back on crime and stuff around 10 years ago ongoing mental health um so a couple of years ago, I started doing some research about my symptoms and stuff, and it was all pointing towards complex PTSD. Um, and then there was like similarities between that and um, borderline personality disorder. Um, so I was looking for treatment and I found EMDR, which is an eye movement therapy. So Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The, how can I explain? So this is the way my therapist breaks it down. There's two parts of your brain. I should know the names of it, but I don't. Um, that process memory. So if you have a nice memory, it goes through one side and it's basically stored in process stored in the other side when you go through a traumatic event it doesn't process it gets stuck on one side of the brain um so with ptsd and you have flashbacks 
loads of triggers, whether it's a smell, a colour, uh, a, a voice, it, you get the flashback and it, and it's this memory that's stored in this side of the brain. And then I think around 30 years ago, um, somebody, the, the person that created EMDR was watching someone, I think it's on, a, was it, is it an MR, a brain scan? Um, and they could see the, the eyes were moving side to side and it was processing memories. So he came up with this therapy that, through eye movement it will process the trauma and it will go into the other side of the brain and be stored and it won't be traumatic it might make you feel uncomfortable but it won't you won't have the sensations of terror terror in your chest um so mine's always been my chest anxiety in my chest um so i would go to the place it's not talking therapy like uh cbt cognitive behavioral therapy because you're basically reliving the trauma the therapist will know the trauma and she tells you to go to that place so i'd go to the child minders um and i'll close my eyes and i will think of the child minders son strangling me and she'll say where do you feel it? I feel in my chest what number do you give it i give it um a 10 it's like pure terror i can't like and then, um, so then we start doing the eye movement. You got, but you have to get the feeling of the memory and where yeah. it affects you in your body and it's chest. So then we start doing the eye movement side to side, but we do EMDR too. So I do the V steps. So I'm walking out to the, stepping out to the right, stepping back, stepping out to the left, stepping back as I'm doing the eye movements and I'm doing calculations backwards as well, like 200, wow. like 200 back and forth, like 200, 194. And I'm doing this, I'm doing, doing that. And then also you've got the headphones on and it's going boop, boop, boop. It like absolutely scrambles your brain. Um, and then afterwards you say, how do you feel? Has the feeling moved from your chest? And I'm saying it's got a bit smaller. So really concentrate on that on that area. And then after three, four weeks, it's gone from like a 10 down to a two. And I could think about it and it makes me feel uncomfortable, but it doesn't scare the life out of me. Um, but the thing is with complex PTSD, people that have complex PTSD usually have early childhood trauma and they they haven't been protected by their, their guardian, by their parent. Um, so if you're not protected as a child and you go through trauma, you're most likely going to keep on finding yourself in those sort of situations where it's keep on having trauma, trauma, trauma throughout their childhood and stuff. So complex PTSD is like a mix of trauma, emotions, memories. Um, you know, say somebody, a normal person that's never experienced any violence in their life is walking along the road, a mugger jumps out, puts a knife to him, give me your bag or you're dead. And they actually believe they're going to die. They have PTSD, they're hypervigilance, they're really agitated and angry around their family. Somebody like that, that went and done emdr could be over that within you know three four sessions done back to normal yeah well while you're describing it i think obviously it works but and you're the living proof but it sounds like it's pretty out there sci-fi stuff so i i've what i'm amazed by is that when you first were exposed to this that you stuck with it do you know what i mean oh but you you, with the side effects are me laying in bed three in the morning 36 years old screaming mom 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 and my wife's like it's okay it's, it's okay baby it's okay it's okay you're here you're here you're here wow and it's okay i'm here it's not it's not real and then yeah and that, that's that's the site oh the the week after you've done it because it's weekly the week after you've done it you have the worst extreme nightmares oh 
horrible stuff. Yeah, because oh your brain God. is processing a whole load of really dark, dark stuff from but the past. This, but, yeah. but Justin, this is all recent, yeah. and I think it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. But you have come a huge way. I mean, you say that yeah. you gave up crime ten years ago, which doesn't seem like yeah. that long ago to me. Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So I'm still trying to work out the difference between the the boy you describe. Yeah. Right. In your yeah. in your younger years, and and the man I'm talking to now, yeah. there is there there appears to be a huge gap, and I'm wondering if there was yeah. a big moment of realization, whether it was when yeah. you first became a dad. What was it? Yeah. So, um, I came out of prison after doing about four years in 2005, um, and I was extremely disturbed, like extremely disturbed, really suffering from PTSD. I had to watch my back for an infamous murderer like that was after me or I thought was after me in prison for about six months. And I, I'm on the same unit as him. So I'm watching my back. I'm extremely paranoid um, and in fear. And this was coming out through self-harming, setting fires to my prison cell. Like there was talk of me being sectioned and, and sent off to Broadmoor until a nurse told me like really need to, you know, calm down. So I've come out and no one knew that I'm going for all this so it's like what do I do I can't be around normal people it's just you just go straight back to crime to, to mm. like your comfort where where you feel safer so it was like I was 21 22 it's like right I'm going to be a gangster <laughs> this is this was my option in life to become a, a gangster so um, I come out of this club and and these guys were starting and because it was my area I had this stupid thing in my head about like territory and stuff and it was like I'm not backing down. I've been in prison with murderers and whatever. I'm not scared of some drunk lads. So anyway, 14 people started attacking me. Um, obviously, 14 people can't attack you at once. They can't get to you. It's just so many. You get overwhelmed. So people are coming in, kicking me, hitting me with bottles. And I always had this fighting instinct on the street as a kid. Of like, If a gang came... Um, you would run to a bin and you would empty the bin. And then if a bottle fell out, you, you've got a weapon to to, to basically survive. Um, and that's what I've done. On, on CCTV, you see me stumble towards a bin, pull a bin over, bottle rolls out, and I smash the bottle in one movement and I just walk up to the crowd and just went bang, bang, basically stabbed two innocent people with a bottle because I didn't know who was who, who was attacking me or whatnot. But because it was only 13 seconds afterwards, it wasn't, you know, it was more like it was self-defense. I didn't, I didn't go off, think about it, where I'm going to come back. I didn't know what was going on. right? But after this event, I was at home on my own, crying my eyes out, like, Oh, what's wrong with my life? What am I doing? I was absolutely battered. Um, and then I was like, why are you crying? Like, get over it. You're used to violence. And then it was like, used to violence. And then that was the first time that I realized that it's not normal to be used to used to violence. It's not normal to have your head kicked in or be stabbed and stuff. Um, and then it was, that was the first time I went to seek therapy. So speaking therapy. Um, and I had, my daughter was about one then. And we started picking away at my early childhood and then she wanted the, the therapist wanted to know and I said about child mind she went that's child abuse I was like no it's not I used to just be strangled there um <laughs> only and, a bit um, of strangling yeah nothing yeah. serious yeah yeah <laughs> um but it was normal to me wasn't it so mm. and then and then I started looking at my daughter thinking oh my god like a child's mind and upbringing is so like delicate um and that's when I started to change and really bond with my daughter but I didn't still didn't realize how unwell I was I mean I wrote 
The Lost Boys, and it was published in 2011. And my publisher would be like, right, there's a talk at this uni. Um, it was Greenwich Uni. And then I'd always make excuses. It was like, it was my dream to write a book. Um, but these people didn't know. I was terrified of just being around normal people. Do you know what I mean? It took so many years for me to... Yeah, I was unwell for so many years. Do you know what I mean? Before I, even when good things were happening um, with the book and stuff, people didn't realize I'm very clever at hiding what's going through my brain. But it was only in the last couple of years when, you know, I thought, no, some, you know, developing and growing as a person, I think, no, I really need to put, you know, get this right. So, what do you, I know you, you give talks now. And you know you, you you're an expert really on on young people, young crime from your own experiences. Um, yeah. What's your diagnosis now? I know it's a complex issue, but what what do you think is going wrong in society where it produces kids who are violent? Well, I think it's changed really since when I was younger. Um, you know, twenty odd years ago. I think today is a lot about, I think social media has a quite a negative impact. Um, music, there's loads of things. Um, it's, it, nowadays, it's really cool to be like a hard man or a gangster or a dealer. or it's, And it's not. That world's an extremely dark and really violent place. So I think a lot of kids that are growing up and sort of, sort, are sort of misguided or if they don't believe that they can have the sort of celebrity status, Instagram status, like in a legit way, they would go, people would go down a, you know, a darker path for it. Um, I feel that real so-called, I don't like to call that bad kids or real sort of bad boys. If what I remembered is we were on the streets from a very young age, we were like the wanderers. Um, You would find each other on the street and you, you were like the tough bad kids. But I think nowadays it's, it's seen cool and kids don't sort of go down, you know, do the wandering. They can just, you know, because it's it's cool to be in a in a gang or it's the, the rap music makes it cool. Like, that's what I think I think the problem is. When, I don't when, think it's just, yeah. When you meet kids who are like yeah. the young you, yeah. is, it, is it possible, do you feel it's possible for you to say things that can change the course they're on? Or do you think, the thing is that the conditioning of their lives, that you know, what's going on at home or what's going on in the culture yeah. is too strong. I think it is strong, but I but I always remember things, what people would say to me, like, you know, as a kid, someone might say something, the world don't owe you nothing, boy. And then I remember someone said that to me and I think, you know what I've been through, like victim mentality. But now I really respect what that person said. Like, so you can plant seeds in kids' heads and let them know. And like, you know, through talks and really, really being open and showing people like, you know, like I said to you earlier, when I went to Felton Young Offenders and I was absolutely terrorised and bullied and put in a vulnerable person's unit, it's it's not false. It's being real and uh, kids sort of respect that. But I yeah, I do think, I think luck, like if I do think if a child's like really loved at home and protected they're less likely to go down that path do you know what I mean so I look I've got a baby boy and when I'm with him I just think how different his life would be he'd be one of those kids I looked at and they had the the mum and dad or they were like 
and they were really loved. You could tell that those kids, you know what I mean? So yeah, yeah, yeah. You've you've sort of fought your way out of this. I mean, obviously yeah. you're a fighter yeah. in both senses of the word. Because yeah. all the things you're saying, it was you decided, it was you at the moment where you realised that the way you were living was wrong and not normal. And it was you sought therapy. Yeah. And then it was you researched even deeper once you'd had therapy. Yeah. You know, and that's that's quite unique. We talk a lot yeah. on this podcast about how important it is to talk to other people, yeah. to share your experiences yeah. with mates. And that's what makes you realise that maybe, you know, everyone's going through the same shit. Now, I don't know, but I'd, I'd guess that sharing your feelings was probably not a big part of gang life when you were a kid with your mates. No, no, it definitely wasn't. Um, well, my my best friend, Joe, um, he was like, this was another really traumatic event. When I was, I think I was 16, and he, no, actually, I was 17 and he was 19. He And I was in Feltham at the time. He was found dead. Uh, he was found hanging um, in sort of suspicious circumstances around Malden, down the back of the shops where we would um, where we would congregate. Um, so that was a real traumatic event for me. But I remember a couple of times, like one of our friends was into like worshiping the devil and stuff, and um, it really freaked us out, scared a lot of people within the gang. It was just really off key like behavior. And I remember Joe saying to me, like pulling me aside, going. You don't believe in that sort of stuff, do you? Like I could see, like my hypervisions back then, I could really feel that he was worried. Um, but you know, and then I, I was even more worried. So I'm like, no, 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 just like swept it aside. So basically, as kids in the gangs, you don't, yeah. you would never talk because you don't even, you don't understand. Like I remember always being in, like having fear and anxiety, and then people would set, say, if you saw a magpie it was um, bad luck, right? So say, oh, if you see two, it's good luck, or you've got to salute it. So, or if you see the back of an ambulance, or if you walk under like two, um, like a, a road sign, and if you walk on track. So, but with my anxiety, and which I had through the trauma I went in, that was just creating an OCD. I believed it. So, oh, if you don't walk on them drains, it's bad luck. If you don't, years down the line when I was in prison and I had that murderer after me um, and I had a meltdown, my OCD was completely out of control. I was walking around the prison unit, touching things three times. My mind was going, if you don't touch that three times, you're going to die. Like, so I'm going, one, two, three. And, like, and it all stemmed from... Yeah, so now my daughter are always, well, I'm really open with my daughter who's nearly 14 about mental health, all sorts of stuff, do you know what I mean? So she's very, very aware of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, she goes, oh, there's a magpie. I'm like, do not believe in that crap. And I, oh, and yeah. I break down, yeah, and I break down like... Don't yeah, even start, yeah. because it, that's <laughs> yeah, a spiral, yeah. isn't it? I yeah, mean, I, yeah, I, I had yeah. that sort of thing when I was younger. Yeah. And it, it before you know it, you're in adulthood and you're still doing these weird little yeah. things that you keep yeah. secret in your own head as well, don't yeah, you? Yeah, yeah. You're too yeah. embarrassed to tell anyone else, but you're doing yeah, all yeah, sorts of weird yeah. shit without yeah, people yeah. seeing yeah. it. Yeah. And you sort of think one day, fuck's sake, I'm a grown adult. What have I, I've been yeah, doing this. Yeah. A, this is yeah. a fucking, it's a spiral, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um. So, uh, so you, you know, you mentioned the book you wrote, The Lost Boys, which yeah. is based on your experiences. And, and now there is a, a short film made of yeah. that no dog which is really exciting tell us a bit about that before i let you go 
Um, so No Dog is a short a proof of concept film based on The Lost Boys. Um, it's basically a day in the life of me, Joe, who passed away, and my cousin Tony. And it's based around Malden in South London and basically just the shit that, that we're going through. Um, you know, fights, being alert, um, attacking another gang, like robbing and everything was just squashed into one day and it would actually be like that. Um and Jamie Winston plays my mum, Jeanette, in the film. Mm. Um, it's really good. It's um, it's nearly completed, like the grading's just being done and the sound. Um, and then it will be going into film festivals. And we're yeah, we're currently seeking um, uh, funding for for the feature film. So yeah. Well, it's it's really I've I've seen the trailer and I think it's fantastic and I read your book which is uh, you know amazing and and I think I genuinely think that we have a lot of different people who've had different experiences often quite extreme experiences yeah. on this podcast but it is I, I'm just amazed by how far you've done and you've sort of dragged dragged yourself through it ultimately after a lot of bad experiences yeah. you've dragged yourself to where you are today which is incredible how do you you know, obviously, you're very focused on being a dad now, which is obviously very positive. How else, though, do you yeah. make sure that you you keep your head in the right place? Um, do you worry that you could go backwards? Yeah, well, I do have my um, bouts of, um, what would I say, uh, anxiety. Like, mm. I find myself in the evenings, like, biting my nails, worrying, worrying, worrying. Um, the, the, my EMDR started, I think, early early last year um but then obviously due to covid it stopped and then we started doing it via zoom which i really didn't like but i kept on but then my my um, therapist got got ill so that stopped again so it's just been up down up down but i've changed you know so much through having the emdr but i still a lot of issues there but once once i'm doing it again from may you know I know I'm, I'm going to be in a real, real better place. Um, but to keep myself calm, I, yeah, I, I'm, well, I'm a graffiti artist, so I, I work on my art. And when I'm doing my art, I'm really, yeah, I don't think about anything else, you know, mm. no worries, no anxiety and stuff. I'm just fully focused. Yeah. Mm. So. And, it, yeah, and so have I, you got, aside from your therapist, have you got people that you talk to now and share this sort of stuff with when you've got these bad feelings? Yeah, well, I've, yeah, I've got some friends. Uh, it's funny because um, I've got friends that are doing like AA, NA, CA, and um, they're so, we're sort of on like a similar journey. And then before, I wouldn't listen to other people's problems because I was so tuned in to um, the law of attraction. Um, what you think you create, don't be around negative people, blah, blah, blah. Um, but through having friends that are dealing with their traumas and stuff through like NA and AA and stuff. And then they're calling me and then I fight, I, you know, if it's too much and then, you know, I can't take it on cause I've got my own stuff, but yeah, I've, because of the, the way they have their support network, I, I can see, Oh, I can talk to these people as well. I can call them people if I'm, you know what I mean? Um, feeling a bit all over the show, but. Well, Justin, listen, amazing story um I, I, incredible and, and you speak so powerfully about it it's um uh, hopefully an inspiration to a lot of other people best of luck with the film i'll be keeping a close thanks, eye um, on that can't wait to see the finished thing uh justin Morris, thanks ever so much thanks Sam. thanks for having me on mate really appreciate it cheers mate
there you go i hope you enjoyed listening to that i thought it was very powerful stuff as you could probably tell i was blown away by the degree to which justin has managed to change himself and his life for the better through almost sheer force of will i'd like to think everyone has it in them to turn their life around in the same way If you want to know more about his story, check out his book, The Lost Boys, and look out for the short film adaptation coming soon, which is called No Dog. Remember to subscribe to the Reset newsletter at sounddelaney.substack.com and follow me on Twitter at DelaneyMan. Until next time, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. Bye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Mm. 